Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is April the 21st, 2020. This is episode 2644 of the Survival Podcast. And the title for today's show is Establishing Your Why for Homeschooling. And I have a special guest named Matt Cleaver. He's joining us today to discuss homeschooling and, again, finding your why as a homeschool parent. And I thought this was really timely uh, right now, and that's why I kind of worked Matt in. I'm doing two interviews a week, a lot of weeks right now, instead of the normal one. And I'm taking certain people and I'm working them in and double stacking my weeks if I think that they are unique to the time we're in. Because a lot of the guests that I'm actually, you know, on my Wednesday interview days now, yeah, we booked them in, like, December. Seriously, that's how far out we book people at times. So um, COVID wasn't really on people's mind heavily in December. So I'm trying to take these ones that really fit the now. And the reason this one fits the now, even though it is kind of timeless as well, because we've been talking about homeschooling since, well, since the beginning of the show, which is 12 years ago we've been talking about it here. But right now, tons of parents who never intended or thought they could or wanted to homeschool are in one way or another homeschooling right now because they don't have a choice. And tons of grandparents and uncles and aunts and things like that are taking on that role because parents are working in essential jobs where they're still at work, but yet the kids are at home and need to somehow get through school. And people are figuring out that, well, uh, even though I never thought I could, obviously I can because I am. And it's amazing how many things we think we can't do, and as soon as we're put in a position where we don't have a choice, we figure out how. That's how all the great innovations in humankind have come along, and I think moving toward a more individualized education is an innovation that is long overdue. So I thought that fit really good for this. I also think that a lot of people that are doing it are like, I wonder if I should keep doing this. I mean, I think that the number of people at homeschool is about to exponentially go up. Because once you get a taste of it, you're like, it's not as hard as I thought. And it's a better result. The other side of it, though, is you will have hard times as a homeschooler. You'll have times where you want to quit on your own kid. You'll want to give up. And you won't want to quit on your kid as a parent, but you'll want to say, eh, maybe I just need to send him back to school and I need to do something else because I'm not good at this. You'll have that gut check moment. And that's what we're talking about, finding your why, because the larger purpose, the why the empowerment of what we can do with this beyond just keep them out of school, keep them away from the state, is what gets you through that why. But there's something else, and we, talk, we end up discovering this together, Matthew and I, today. But I'm going to say it in the beginning, because I think it sets the mind in a really interesting place for this discussion. And that is, if you have that gut check, teachers in the everyday world that deal with 100 or more students a day have that gut check all the time. Not so much at the macro as a teacher in of itself, but with individual students that they can't get through to, they, that they can't bring up to speed, that they or the student that's so far beyond everybody else, they just don't worry about them anymore, and I, I wish I could do something for you, but I can't. And they quit on teachers quit on individual students every day. Now, I know you're going to send me hate mail for that, because you're a teacher or you love a teacher. Don't, because I won't read it, because you're being stupid, because you're not understanding what I'm saying. You do that every day with something. We all have a limit to how much we can do. And we have all these things in front of us that we have to do. And we give priority to the things we have to do. And some things fall through the cracks. 
if you'll get to a point where you'll be like, you know, I think I have to quit this, then you can't expect the teachers who don't love your kids as much as you do. And no matter how good a teacher is, no matter how wonderful a person they are, no matter if they love their job, no matter how much they love everything about being a teacher, they can't love your son or your daughter as much as you do because you're their parents. That's not a slight to teachers. That's, that's, that's a recognition of how much parents love their kids. And if you'll have that gut check, so will they. But you are a hell of a lot more likely to get through a gut check for your kids than a state employee is. And again, no matter how good a public school teacher is, they are still an employee of the state. That's what they are. That's what they are. And they're judged in a bureaucratic process, and there's a threshold that they have to do where they'll keep their jobs, and sooner or later, not because there's anything negative about the individual, but because that's how systems work, they will fall into the line with the aggregate average of the system. Because that's the best way to go along to get along as a teacher. You're going to hear a couple examples today of before he quit, when Matt was still teaching, things that he had to do to go above and beyond to not create a problem for himself. It's really interesting. So we'll get to all that in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. I love the Ridge Wallet. It has made my life just a little bit better. The fact that my whole life now fits in something that's about, oh, about 30% the size of a deck of cards instead of that big bill fold that I used to wear in my butt pocket that used to screw up my posture, or I'd sit in my truck and I'd be like, oh, man, this is annoying, so I would stick it in the cubby hole and then I would get to the store and I would get all my stuff and I'd get up to the counter to pay and they rang up all my stuff and then I reached and my wallet wasn't there. We've all had it happen, right? With the Ridge Wallet and how easy it is to carry and the fact that I don't take it out of my pocket until I want to like do something with something inside of it, that never happens to me anymore. And I'm protected from identity theft. Check out RidgeWallet.com today to find out how you can join the club and become, well, a minimalist with your wallet and have a more secure and just better life altogether. It really is that simple. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, JM Bullion. Hey, have you looked at the price of silver? I mean, gold's down too, but silver is a buy right now, guys. Where would you get silver right now? I would get it from JM Bullion, and I'll tell you why. All orders over $100 ship for free. They give you a discount if you buy $300 or more silver if you're an MSB member. They have the best prices online. And if anything ever goes wrong, I can get directly in touch with the president to get it solved for you. So my question for you would be, why would you buy from anybody but JM Bullion? Look, I am not the all-in guy on silver and gold. I've had a very consistent recommendation, 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold. I've made that recommendation since almost day one of this podcast, and I follow it myself. And I am more of the school of thought of the 5%. 5% is kind of my target for people. 10% is kind of, if you want to do more, and I don't. But if you do, kind of that's my cutoff on the upper end. I don't think we should make our whole life invested in the silver and gold. I think silver and gold do things really, really well, and they don't do everything great. So we use it as a wealth preservation strategy, and we use it as an anonymous form of wealth that we can pass down to future generations or trade and barter with. And that's what it's great at. So check out Jam Bullion and increase your silver and gold holdings if you're below that 5% range. And if you're not, as you build your wealth, kind of track along with it. But why would you go anywhere other than Jam Bullion, a company that's been with us for eight years and has always taken care of our audience in a world that maybe is not the nicest world to be in? Check them out today at jambullion.com. All right. 
With that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest. Again, we're going to be talking about finding your why as a homeschooler today. And with that, I want to say, hey, Matt, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Jack, thanks, man. It's a, it's a pleasure and honor to be here today. Hey, I've got you on today to talk about uh, homeschooling and, and kind of parents finding their why and, and doing it as, as a kind of stay-at-home dad and some other stuff. Before we get into that, though, tell us a little bit about you know who, who you are, like kind of what's your background and, and, and how that led you into even wanting to do homeschooling. Sure. Uh, well, I grew up on a typical Kansas small-scale farm. Uh, went and left the farm to go be a music major, so leaving to go to a liberal arts college was probably not the, you know, favorite thing my parents would have ever, uh, <laughs> imagined me doing. And went and got a music degree. I really liked it. I loved music. And went on to get a master's degree and still had the plan of teaching. And had toured the country doing drum corps international and various other activities and really got uh, in touch with some of the, you know, best of the best in the teaching world. And then, uh, shortly thereafter, my wife and I got married and I got my first teaching job in a small town in Kansas. And that was when I entered the trenches, if you will, of, of government education hmm. and really, really got a feel firsthand of, of what that system was designed to do. And that I did that for five years and I had a lot of success. I loved my job. I was at my job all the time. So I was, I was never at home. Um, and <laughs> that was about the same time I started listening to the survival podcast, this jerk named Jack. Uh, I, I think it was about my fourth year and my paradigm of education or information exchange. That was when it really started to change. Um, my program was huge. I, I had about 200 kids, uh, ages six through 12th grade. And it changed my very last year. I had to take over a community college program as well as teaching public school, uh, because of some unique circumstances. And I, I had a couple homeschool kids in my class and they were just blowing my mind. Hmm. And I started just kind of being curious, really. Curiosity is what got me. And and about that same time, you had posted a podcast on uh, government education. And, and, man, it was kind of the culmination point. I I just went home and spoke with my wife and, and walked into my superintendent's office the next day. And I was like, I'm, I'm out, man. <laughs> this is it for me. And... And we, we've, we've gone homeschool ever since, and uh, it's been an amazing, challenging journey, but I, 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 I wouldn't have it any other way. So, I find it interesting that some of the biggest advocates that I've spoken to for homeschooling are people that were teachers in the public school system. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times, too, they're teachers that are maybe not in the part of the school system that I guess is the worst part of it. Like you were a music teacher, generally. Right. You know, see a lot of indoctrination occurring in music class, right? Because music is right. music. But yet, there's still like enough exposure to the system that you start to realize that something's wrong. Like, this isn't what I really wanted to do with my life. I want to teach, but I don't right. know that I want to do it for you. Uh, right. Were there certain patterns or signs that appeared in government schools that made you decide, like, I really want to do something differently? Yeah, the, 
I remember a single day in particular, uh, my wife and I, we'd just kind of gotten into homesteading a little bit. Uh, my brother-in-law was the one that kind of turned me on to the podcast. We were starting to try and raise some of our own food, and my cows had gotten out, so I was late getting to school. And I was thinking about my day on the way there, and I pulled up into school, and all the kids were just lined up on the outside of the school, like in these lines, just like drones, like waiting for their daily dose of mediocrity. And 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 I went into my class, and they I don't know what the day was just like. They were just complete zombies. And there were so many elements, like the day before we had just practiced an active shooter drill. So like their sense of information intake and, and how sponge like they were, like they were not taking in anything. They were just worried about not getting shot at still, cause that's still in blooming mm. in the back of their minds. And I was like, man, this environment is not what it needs to be to get these kids, you know, to take in information. And after that, I, the the biggest moment was about two weeks after that day, they they did a schedule change and one of my top classes was a group of middle school kids and they switched them to after lunch and I got them in class and like they were just they were off like they couldn't <laughs> their mo- their motor skills were off they couldn't listen they weren't focused their eyes were just glassed over and and then I went into the lunchroom and the class before they got to me and just watched what they were eating and how they were interacting. And they were just so lackadaisical and the food became an issue of like, they're sending me these kids with a huge blood sugar dump and they can't focus. There were so many things working against them, uh, from being in, you know, a good environment to learn. And that was kind of the tipping point for me. It's like, I can't do this anymore. Hmm. So, when you made the decision to do this, you were a teacher by trade. Right. Did that actually make becoming a homeschool teacher, would you say, easier or maybe maybe more difficult because you were trained in a thing? Because I've noticed that a lot of homeschoolers, when I talk to them, they're like, don't try to make homeschool like you just move the classroom. Like you need to, to develop your own format your own platform they'll try to mimic exactly what goes on there and then some really do kind of mimic exactly what goes on there some just use the state's curriculum that's now online so i mean was that easy or hard or how'd that work out yeah that's that's a really good question i i think for both types of people parents it's like whatever you feel most comfortable and can motivate your child to do as long as you're accommodating your child's differences that's really all that matters you can you can do that within any given system i think where a lot of people you know paralysis by analysis where they feel like they have to make it just like public school and they don't feel qualified that's that's awful i think you know a lot of parents are right. Like there are many things that need change. However, you know, consistency and an agenda every day is key. I know a lot of parents are probably figuring that out right now. Like Hmm. if if you don't have an agenda for the day, like it's going to be mass chaos in your house. Um, and, and using time as a variable to kind of quantify or usher the day along, like sure you can try to schedule things for a certain amount of time, but man, if you need to stop and take, longer time with something then then this the agenda needs to be able to accommodate that and public school just can't like it's you know it's so rigid as you know it's when it's time to go it's going and there's no going back to it 
Well, and it's um, both ways, right? So if it's like, okay, really, we can just look at the kids and go, they, they need 15 minutes to go blow some steam off. You can't right. do that. But the other right. thing is, like, when class ends and you're like, Jimmy just doesn't get this. Right. See you tomorrow, Jimmy. <laughs> do your homework. Yeah. Right? Jimmy doesn't get it, but go do your homework that you don't understand. Jimmy's toast, man. Jimmy's toast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, there, dude, there are... 70% of the schools at any given point of the year are jimmies. Yeah. You know, they all just have their day. And and when you get in a rut of having 12 jimmy days in a row, you, you just hate it. You don't want anything to do with it. Well, in certain things like mathematics, right? If right. Jimmy doesn't learn today's thing, two weeks from now, Jimmy could have tried as hard as Jimmy's capable of. He could have solved all his own ADD problems. He could have paid attention to everything in class. He still doesn't know what X equals because that was last Tuesday, and the right. rest of the pieces will not fit together for him. Right. And there's just no accommodation to kind of go back and say, hey, why don't you understand this? Instead, they yell at Jimmy in front of a blackboard who's looking at an equation and doesn't know what to do with it. And, and now it like it's totally retarded because now well there's 87 steps to do a simple arithmetic problem with Common Core. Like I, <laughs> I feel bad for Jimmy. As bad as Jim was for Jimmy in 1985, in 2020 Jimmy is toast. Man, yeah, yeah. And the system is only going to continue to accommodate, try to accommodate the lowest common denominator, and the to the children that naturally rise to the to the top. Man, by the time they get to 10, 11, 12th grade, they've hit their peak back in 7th, 8th grade. And they're just on the decline, coasting, waiting to get through the hoop jumping circus. And for all the jimmies, like, they're just trying to usher as many jimmies through as they can to put a good number on their graduation rates. Yeah, jimmies just trying to survive and get through the star test or whatever. I mean, that's right. what we call it here in Texas, the standard test, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's a difficult world that we've put these kids into. Um, yes. Why did you personally change? What, because we're talking about your why today. Kind of, What was your why? I mean, we've kind of talked about a lot of bad things, but was there a thing that you're like, I'm doing this for me and my family because blank? Yeah, I think this is really, this is the part that really sustains your homeschooling journey because I think, if a lot of parents are doing it to shelter or protect or play defense with their kids, I think on the days where all their buttons are pushed, but buttons are pushed and they're just stressed out that, you know, whatever they're trying may not be working. And if you're doing it from a, I don't want the world to touch my child type of thing. I think that why is really tough to get through those moments. And if you do it from an offensive standpoint, where the mind is like, wow, look at everything that's capable, we're capable of, and how agile we are as a small functioning educational unit as a family. We can get out and go find these top people in these jobs. We can go talk to these people. We can be online. We can take a break. We can go outside and do some short. You know, anything is possible as long as you're playing offense. I think playing your, if your why is, is just to, oh my gosh, I don't want my kids to be in public school because it's so bad and there's so many bad people and teachers have a lot of, you know, that's on your bad days, you're, you're going to end up sacking it and quitting and just shoving them back into the system uh, because you forgot about what is possible. And that for me, I, man, I, I would call in. We had visitors in our classroom and my administration was just like, dude, you got to, 
you got to not have so many outside people coming in all the time. And, and I would, I just hated all this forms and stuff. I'd be like, just come in the back door, come, come talk to my class. And that, hmm. it, it just didn't work. <laughs> I was like, well, if I have my own kids, I'm just gonna, you know, call them. I don't have to sign a form. So. Well, yeah, I, I think there is some of that. I think that like, Having some sort of like grander vision obviously is really important. What we've learned with all of a sudden we are now homeschooling my grandson, which is oh, wow. to me a whole different ball of wax because yeah. you, you know it's my grandson. I I did the dad thing, <laughs> right? right? I already have a daycare center in my home that I didn't sign up for, and I love my grandkids. I don't want anybody to take that the wrong way, but like my wife and I are getting older and having kids in the house every day during all the, and it's not like. You know, the parents get them, like, when it's bedtime, and they're all settled down, and, like, we get them, like, through the rambunctious period now. Mm -hmm. And we already had that, but now they're here all day long, the days that they're here, and we're seeing to his schooling because school's closed, and that's what we – so we're doing this because we kind of were thrust into it. Right. And, yeah, I mean, one of the first things we did was set an agenda. My wife mm -hmm. and I, we set an agenda for the kids beyond the school part, like – Once his work is done, like, here's certain things that are going on so that we don't end up wrapped into the iPod all day and sometimes we're outside or whatever. Um, but we also had to get through to him, like, okay, look, you have to stop making excuses as to the fact that you don't understand this because you didn't read it and you actually have to just do it. And because we were looking at things going, like, if you're struggling, we'll help you. But we looked at it and went, no, you, you, you're smart enough to do this particular assignment. You just don't want to. So I had to get through to him with the concept of, this isn't for me, this is for you. Yeah. And the way I put it to him is I said, well, you just spent all day to do your work. I looked at your work, and I know how smart you are, and I think you could have done it in about two hours. Mm -hmm. He's nine, to give you an idea of the age bracket we're talking yeah. about. I think you could have done this <laughs> in about two hours. Now, what that means is, you're given this amazing opportunity to be here at home, to do your work, And then to be free. But instead of yeah. being free, you enslaved yourself all day and made yourself miserable because you didn't want to do the work. When you could have been done with the work at 10, 30, 11 o'clock and you could have been free all day long. And I let that go. And the next day he was in the garage with my wife and he said, and like almost like whimpering, I just want to be free. <laughs> and it was like a switch. Yep. And it's like, now it's like how, and I'm not going to say that it's always that way. Like there's days we have to kind of ping pong and back into bounds, but sure. it's almost everything. Like how quickly can I get this all done so yep. that I can be free? Because he realized I could have the time back. And I, I sat down with him. I'm like, you can take like seven hours of your life back a day. That's 35 hours a week. You can Dude. have it or you can like be enslaved by it. Yeah. And, I, you know, like I said, I just. Just kind of, I'm hard on people in general, and little kids can be afraid of me because of how I am. <laughs> But, like, kind of just playing that scene walking away and, like, letting that cook in that little brain, like, oh, I'm screwing myself. And, yeah. like, I think that can be one of the things is, so if, if we really do waste so many hours a day of our kids' lives right. with the, the stuff they put together to occupy their time while their ass is in the seat, And if we can really get that work done in a fraction of the time, what can those kids do with that time that we give back to them? Because yeah. the, the learning doesn't stop because the work stops, because we have that other agenda. And some of that is, well, you can watch TV now, but like you can watch Curiosity Stream for an hour. Right. 
right? You, in this half hour, you can watch, you know, Thomas the Train or whatever for the little girl and whatever the hell kind of crap you want. But for this hour, if you want to watch a screen, then you can pick something off Curiosity Stream or one of the things we approve of for you to learn something from on Disney. My work's done. Yes, and you're free to go out and do work outside, or you can watch like that. And then they actually enjoy that because they get a choice in it, and he gets to learn about big cats or something like that. So now he's spending more time learning and less time conforming. And yeah. to me, that's a huge why. I mean, we flirt with the idea of continuing this even when they go back to school, but on the other hand, again, he's not my son. He's my grandson, and I'm old. <laughs> I like my house I think, peaceful. <laughs> I think, you know, even thinking from the mind of that Jimmy kid, it's like, well, what's the incentive if I go ahead and do knock out my work and I still have to sit here? Like, they just won't let me go. Yeah. You know, it's, it, yeah. And then he's set up perfectly for the corporate work system because there again, the incentive of working by the hour of time is what you quantify for success. Man, they're, they're, They're in deep. They're incarcerated. They really are. And, I mean, that's a good way to put it. It is a minimum security prison. And yeah. people say, well, teachers do their best, and they really love kids and all. Okay, so if I have a minimum security prison, and all my prison guards are well-trained to, to teach and educate the prisoners, and they really do love prisoners, and they really do <laughs> love educating them, right? And they yeah. really, really are underpaid heroes, of the world that work in this prison system and really love the prisoners who are there on a nightly work release and then off on the weekends, it's still a prison. It, I don't care how how in love with the job the, the guards are, and I don't care how well they do their job, it doesn't change the fact that it's a building you can't leave and somebody comes and gets you if you don't go to it. Right. And, and where you have no rights while you're there. Like it doesn't yeah. change the the mechanism by which you're doing things, and I, I don't know, man. If you've ever been to like to visit somebody, or if you've actually been there yourself as an unfortunate resident, a minimum security prison, like the the is, is as light as it gets, and then you walk through a public education system or a public education school, they're not the same. But the feeling and the methodology and the organization and the structure and the hierarchy and the system of discipline, etc., is all very, very, very familiar. It feels the same. You know, it, it feels confining. It feels like you're marching people from one place to the other and keeping them in small rooms. Where else do we yeah. do that? I mean, yeah. I know people think that I'm over the top when I say that, but it's like, but have you have have you been to one? Right. Right? Have you been to one? Oh, their children around for a day. Just one day. Yeah. Yeah. And then the I'm, way that the, the little cliques form and then the abuse of each other forms, it all is very prison-like as well. You know, the tough yeah. kids that take from the weak kids. And, I mean, all of that is very prison-like as well. The thing that really put the icing on the cake, right after we did that active shooter drill, I remember when all the cops came around to kind of give, oh, tips to administrators about every single room. And I was in my room when the cops and the principals came, and I was standing there, and the, the lead sheriff or whatever walks through the door and looks at the windows and how my room was set up and where the exits were. And he goes, 
Oh man, this room is a death box. Oh. I was like, what? Thanks <laughs> a lot, man. <laughs> Dude, thanks. He's like, yeah, somebody comes in here. These kids can't get out of here. They're, they're toast. I was like, well, it just so happens I have the, the largest class size in the district. So if you're somebody that wants to put the hurting on kids, where are you going to go? Yeah. My room. You yeah. Know? You know what? Like the a, one school oh, in this Pennsylvania is, this did is comforting. These, this one Pennsylvania school did these drills where like they were like, well, we got to give the kids a way to fight back. So they had like all the kids bring in soup cans and shit, and like in every desk there's like a you know a 16 ounce can of soup, and people mock it all, and uh, it sucks. But I don't know, 200 people pitching one and a half pounds cans of soup at somebody's head and fighting back seems like a better solution than let's all go hide in the corner, lock the door, and hope nothing happens. Like, right. it, it, but the fact that we've now reduced survival to fighting back with a can of soup. Yeah, I, I will say that would be one major uh, advantage we have. Like, I don't know if you've ever been hit with a steel trumpet mouth. Oh, I was just thinking, man. Can hurt. You can Rambo somebody <laughs> with a trombone pretty hard. Dude, yeah. You know? Those are, they are instruments and weapons uh, yeah. all at the same time. I, I can see a saxophone cracking a skull. I. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man. So you know, you, the mouthpiece is kind of like the, like a, it's like a, fl a flailing weapon. But like the fact that we're even having that discussion says there's something very, very wrong. Yeah. And you can say whatever you want about the guns are too easy to get or whatever. When I was a kid, and I know people oversell this about you know hunting with the dean or whatever. I really did hunt with my wood shop teacher after school. Yeah. I, I would say 50% of the boys, at least in the school, hunted. They closed the schools for the first day of deer season in Pennsylvania, and I think they still do. But when I was a kid, school was closed for the first day of deer season. I don't think that any boy was more than one degree of separation from a gun if he wanted a gun. Like, right. if, you didn't, if you couldn't walk into your house, open up a cabinet, and take a gun out, you knew somebody that could, and, you know, the bad seed knows the bad seed that can get a gun. Like... There was literally no way that you could say there was anybody in that school that could not, within 48 hours, get their hands on a gun, and there were exactly zero shootings in the school system in Pennsylvania in the years I went to school that, that I yeah. know of. Zero. And most of Pennsylvania was like, you know, Philly and Pittsburgh, a little different, but even Pittsburgh is full of hunters. Uh, and So there were guns, way more availability of guns, no school shootings. Something changed in the school system itself. And I ain't saying it was great, but I am saying we weren't killing each other. Nobody yeah. was stabbing anybody, etc. And so something has changed in the psyche of the students themselves in you know the 35 years it's been since I was in school. And that's, yeah. that's frightening because if it's just a gun, if it, you know, I'm hugely pro-gun. Like, the fact that you can't order a gun to your house from Sears anymore, that bothers me. But if it was purely a gun access solution, well, then we could do that. But it's not. It's a violence problem, and we've created a system that begets violence. And all I can say is, tell me a prison where no prisoner shanks another prisoner, and then look at the discussion we had ten minutes ago. Yeah. And you can't be surprised that this is going on. Yeah. Yeah. It it's, I don't know, the whole thing just really, if we start really trying to put our thumb in what has changed, I think that's, we could make a weeks long podcast on just that alone. Yeah. Of what has changed? Well, here's why. Here's your symptoms. Yeah. I think it's a greater desire for full control. 
I think is a big part of it. Like when when they say today that teachers need parents' support, what they mean is shut up about your opinions and tell your kids to listen to us. Yeah. Right? Where you know like when I was a kid, legitimately you went home, sat down your work in front of your parents and said, Help me with this and they went, Oh, okay. And, yeah. and it seems like part of Common Core, people are like, you don't understand Common Core. Look, I completely understand how you can use this math principle to teach the foundational principles of quadratic equations. Equations, great. So use it for that in, like, 10th grade when you're moving to quadratic equations, okay? Let's not confuse a second grader with it. Let's teach them their times tables. Right? So I get it. But I, what I really get is by doing this, you've made it impossible for me to help my grandson do his work, so now yeah. I'm dependent upon you. And that's just one <laughs> of the many mechanisms and hooks of control that I think they've put in, and that's why it became more prison-like. Even if it looks the same, it feels different, and the feel is what creates the problems in the psyche of the kids, if that makes sense. It does. I think one of the things, and I hear a lot of parents saying this, especially now where everybody is homeschooling, is I can't teach my kid. Teachers have to teach my kid. Well, we have to think about what subconsciously we're telling the children when we hire somebody else out to teach them. It's like, well, either I don't have time for you to do this or I don't have the ability. It's either one or the two. Mm -hmm. And when that teacher comes in and tells this child what to do and they're used to taking information and instruction for that and then suddenly everything changes and now the parent is back to, you know, their normal role of parenting and, you know, maturating and educating and the child is completely locked up because they had this signal from so long ago. It's like, well, who are you telling me what to do? That's my teacher's job. Well, <laughs> when you go to parent-teacher conferences, it's parent or teachers are sitting there like, it's not my job to parent. It's not my job to discipline your kid. And, yeah. man, there's just this massive crossfire, and the child's stuck in the middle like, I, I just want to know who to listen to. <laughs> well, and the thing is, you, so the parent says, well, I can't teach them. Okay, well, what grade is right. your kid in? Fifth grade. Okay, did you graduate fifth grade? Yeah, well, you can, you can teach them. Mm -hmm. and, and what has happened is because of a lot of the Common Core methodology and stuff like that, so what parents end up doing is trying to teach them according to this doctrine. What your kid yeah. really knows, needs to know how to do is divide 4,312 by 57. How you teach them to get that answer is not really that important unless you're asking the school system to grade the, the result. If you're truly homeschooling, can they do the math? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because that's... You know that that and that I think is a huge difference. So a parent is now judging themselves based on an educational platform that they're unfamiliar with, instead of just their ability to help their child. Because education is is creating an understanding, is mm -hmm. is really what it is. If I can create understanding in you, and then I can encourage the trivium of grammar, rhetoric, and logic, I empower you to learn yourself. And so, like, our quote of the day today is from Leonardo da Vinci, who knows a little bit about education, uh, or knew a little bit. He's dead now, of course. But he said, as far as, as education, poor is the pupil who does not surpass his master. Oh. Now, now, this is one of the greatest minds of all time, and he had plenty of people that would have been considered his pupils, plenty of understudies and, and, and what have you. Right. And... His goal for them was to be better than himself. Yeah. And so the entire education system is predicated on the part of, to teach the second grade, you now need a master's degree 
in education, yeah. right? So how is how is the student to surpass the master? And the, and the entire hierarchy is developed so that that is considered impossible. Right. And so if if your goal as a parent is to educate your child to the point where they can get be fur, go further than you, then the entire goal, instead of becoming structure and rigor, becomes empowerment. How do I empower this person to have unlimited learning potential? And then encourage that natural instinct. That's actually not that hard. We've been convinced that it's hard because, well, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry that involves taxing the things we live in. Right? I mean, I that's, think, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. I think creating that mental environment for those kids to, you know, have that mindset of, like, you should be able to surpass me and look at, you know, to raise those students up to get to that level. Man, by my third or fourth year, there were kids that, could play they could outplay me under the table and i i made spectacles of those kids and i was afraid to put myself on the line but if you go down the road to every teacher and you try to isolate those students that know more than the teacher does man you you want to see the hair stand up on the back of a teacher start talking about kids that know more than teachers do i mean it's it's just not an environment that's encouraged where mm. you want your student to know more than you you know i it's, loved history i loved science uh, I loved geology. I, I loved all those things like that. And so I would get into a class, and I would take the textbook, and literally in a week I'd read the entire textbook. Well, this entire <laughs> class is based on this one textbook. All the tests are out of this one textbook. I now know this. I'm just the person I have that sort of retention. Anything I read that I'm interested in, I'm probably going to retain 80% of, which is way more than you need to get an A on tests. Yeah. So... Okay, I've read the textbook. So now I'd like, oh, you know, this is kind of actually interesting. So I'd go down to the library and read three or four more books that were related to what this textbook was about. And for a lot of public school teachers, you literally did know more about what they were teaching than they did at that point. And I could only imagine the frustration of a Jack Spirico with the Internet oh, at 15. Because if you'd given me the Internet back then, I would pay. Hey, by the way, you're totally wrong about that. The latest research indicates that. You know, like, and I mean, <laughs> that's just as disruptive, and I liked it. I like yeah. being disruptive, right? So I can't even imagine the poor teacher that runs into the advanced student in their particular world in a day where I have access to almost all knowledge at my fingertips and I'm motivated to go find it. Yeah. Uh, see, I think that the Jack Spearco brain, if we could hold that up on a pedestal for a second, like the one thing that you had that most kids have stolen from them around the age of 7th, 8th grade is curiosity. And if they aren't curious to, to know those things that they're still passionate about, to know what is possible, man, they have zero motivation. And at that point, they are relying solely on the, you know, the hoop jumping of the teacher to just shove them along. Just, just keep going. Do this next. Mm. And it's like, man, this is, I want my children curious and I want them questioning, why do I need to know this? What is the purpose for this? <laughs> Absolutely, man. So how have you, like, integrated some of the things you have access to at home that you wouldn't at school, like your farm or your homestead or whatever, into your curriculum? Oh, great question. So we pretty much rely on the farm to be everything science-wise, like botany, biology, ecology, chemistry. Like yesterday, my daughter and I, we were uh, dry curing some pork. So we were talking about, you know, salt and water ions and, and measurements and fractions. And, you know, man, you could go all day and never crack a textbook. Our only math text in our house is uh, 
an, a mental arithmetic book from like 1888. Hmm. And man, if you knew the math that those kids could do over a hundred years ago, it, it blows my mind. I'm like, wow, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, you, we try to use the farm, uh, also with, uh, you know, like kids have a survival instinct of when they're in a new place, their mind subconsciously is soaking up so much information. So if we introduce a new topic, we may go to a completely different place on the farm and I'll talk about it. Kids will sit outside under a tree. And then any time that I have to bring back up that topic, I'll bring up the location in which I talked about it. And the kids, they, they can literally recall everything I say if the location is new and that kind of helps us designate. We have a couple places in our house that when we're sitting down talking and exchanging information, like this is a hallowed place. You don't mess with this place. This is where we talk about anything. Uh, you know, our dinner table, we have a, another place in our dining room, our bedroom at night before we go to bed. You know, this is, this is hallowed time and hallowed space and location as well as, uh, you know, any place on the farm, those are really good tools that anybody can use, you know, public parks. I mean, go sit on a new swing or something and talk about a new subject. That's a survival instinct every human has. Um, I think that's, that's one that's of the one most thing. innovative things I've ever heard. Like just by moving to a new location, you increase the ability to retain and learn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. That makes me think about a lot of things that can be done in the virtual world. So did this put a strain on your marriage? I mean, because, like, you you quit your job, went home to teach, yeah. and your wife is earning a living and you're not. Um, yeah. <laughs> what was that like? So, yeah, you know, you get – it's the funniest things that started to happen, like, we have a, a large Mennonite community here not far down the road, and we would go to their church and listen to hymns or something, and we'd touch the I'm a stay-at-home dad. No, I'm a child security officer. No, what am I? You know, I'm trying to figure out what am I, uh, in my own mind, trying to justify, you know, what I'm doing. My wife and I, we decided, my wife and I are both products of public education. I had a really rough time in school. My wife is, I mean, she's got a, a very gifted, talented brain. And... For both of us, we had, she was the bored child, kind of like you. You know, she could learn everything she needed to know and then had to sit there and suffer through the rest of the class. Me, on the other hand, like, I couldn't, I, I couldn't get it. I, I didn't have my curiosity. I couldn't relate to the teacher. And both of us coming from those two places, we just decided, hey, let's, uh, let's try to be a family. Let's, let's really, you know, try to construct uh, this household for our children and give our, our children, uh, the, the best life we can while they're growing up. And then, you know, after they're gone and out of the house, there's, there's now five of me where before there maybe just have been one of me. And if I'm out trying to fight battles for other parents, kids, I just destroyed the life of my own, my own four. And now it's, it's me and four of my kids out there that have no true due north. <laughs> And so, you know, our justification was like, well, if I can get our kids to just really have uh, a help-centered uh, mind and heart that they can go out and relate to other people and help society any way possible, there's five of me now instead of just one. 
and let you know, we get one shot at this and then it's over and it's going to go really quick so hmm. we just decided there were sacrifices we needed to make and and here we go so luckily my wife is a very understanding uh, incredibly hardworking, resilient human so uh i i had that going for me so you know you kind of became like this stay-at-home dad did that have any you know issues with you mentally like you're talking about what do i call myself almost i i heard you yeah. almost say but pull yourself back from justify my existence and like yeah that is like raising your children is the highest calling you can have but I, i guess there's a point where you start to like hey i was always the guy that made sure the money came in and now i'm not doing that yeah the there were several variables i had to consider and take very seriously mainly for my you know my mental health like When I was teaching public school, I couldn't go to Walmart without somebody pulling me into a 20-minute conversation. I mean, I was a public spectacle as a as a you know a well-known educator in the system, and I was so I was in the newspaper all the time, and people were coming to you know call me and talk to me, and it was great. I loved the attention, and it was all positive. Uh, and then when I homeschooled, I was in complete isolation all day i may go days without seeing another human that wasn't my wife you know and preparing myself mentally for that switch it took a while because the only person that you are you know at the mercy of to get to appreciate what you do most days is your spouse so you may work your tail off all day in the house trying to get somebody to go hey good job way to go and it's like But, but do you see everything I did today? And nobody else appreciates it because your kids aren't going to come up. Wow, dad, you're knocking it out of the park today. Like, you know, you have to, there's a certain amount of gratification and, and praise that you may have been used to getting like, I don't know, a paycheck that you're not going to get anymore. Yeah. And you have to really prepare yourself for that switch. I think that's the single most important thing for dads, especially moms. I think they're wired. I don't know. They're just, They can do it, and they don't need the praise. But men in our uh, sort of fragile ego, I guess, if you will, it's like you you really got to have your why strapped down tight. Because if you go into this and you're not prepared for the, the awkward looks in public of, like, you're a stay-at-home dad, really, <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll second-guess yourself. And that you just have to have your feet planted firm of, like, no, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. Like, This is, as you say, the absolute highest honor one could have of taking on the burden of educating one's own children. And if if you look at it that way, you will uh, you will accomplish so much more in the day. But if you if you feel like you're just at home tolerating your kids, like most parents are probably doing right now today, it's like, well, man, you're you're just you're as you would say, you're you're not making the most of that dash. You're just you're burning daylight, and that is not playing offense. That's sitting on the bench, and that's not the purpose of homeschooling. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So, um, how did you kind of brace yourself and adjust to that change of daily adult interaction? Because that's one of the things I can see being <clears throat> the biggest thing. Like, it's one thing to realize, hey, like this is really valuable to do and all, but <clears throat> I think a lot of people are getting a uh, understanding of this too with you know, kind of this shelter in place thing like yeah. we need adult conversation and when all your conversation all day long is kids man it can be tough yeah, yeah. um you know like 
I talk about this too and use the analogy of your, your circle of control, your circle of influence, this type of thing. Like who are the people that influence you on a daily basis if you don't have access to humans? And certainly podcasts, I, I consider you somebody who's in my circle of influence. Even though I don't technically know you personally, I still interact with you on your podcast and you influence, you know, my mental framework on a daily basis and who we choose to listen to. I, I get up early and I read in the mornings, exercise, not a whole lot, but I think exercise is a, is a must when, you know, exercise is, is all for peace of mind. And when we are isolated, isolation will kill somebody faster than any given disease. In fact, it will fuel a disease because you've lost that human connection. And, you know, if you can use this to your advantage, too, because if you really truly treat your children like a, a civilized adult even though you're just trying to get them to pee in a toilet or whatever it is, <clears throat> you know, there, there is a way to, to elevate, you know, your view of your own children and talk to them and, and interact with them. Like, you know, they, they are an adult and that is the expectation you have really, even though they are children and you want them to be children, you can use that to your advantage in, in a point of isolation. Uh, I just think it, if you don't really take the time to really sit down and think that one through it will eat you alive. It's just a matter of time. Absolutely, man. So um, <clears throat> after three years of homeschooling now, what would you tell parents who are thinking about making the change? Like what would you advise them or what words would I, of encouragement might, might you give them? The first thing of me being a former public government teacher or daycare provider, however you want to look at it, is you can do this. You can do this. You are the only one that's qualified, in my opinion. Uh, you just have to do the diligence of, of making sure that, you know, number one, your spouse is on board, uh, that you're willing to make those financial sacrifices to make this a priority. It has to be your utmost highest priority in the day. Like if, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you, you got to train, if it's not the first thing you think about of, of educating your kids, you got to train yourself to make it that way. And you can do that. You know, even if you don't have a natural passion for it right now, you can grow it and just know that you're going to, you are going to hit tough times. And, and that struggle that you push through those walls, you push over, uh, for fighting for the, the true connection with your children. That's a battle worth fighting every time and if if you don't fight that battle nobody else is going to fight that battle for your child and you should never expect a public school teacher to fight it uh because i mean they're 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 they got a room full of jimmies and you know they're, they're just trying to keep their head above water the way it is so that's to encourage parents, I think that's the, mainly what I've been doing the last three weeks is just, you know, parents helping parents put out house fires with their children. And it's like, hey, you can do this. Chill out. You got this, you know. So, you know, the interesting thing there is, and I don't think people maybe tend to think this way, but if you get to points where you think about giving up, you love your kids more than any school teacher ever will. Oh, yeah. And the way they give up is different than the way you give up. You give up by, like, sending your kids back to the school or getting them in a private school or whatever, and you just stop doing it. 
it, teachers, we got to get rid of this. They're all heroes that don't wear capes bullshit. They're human beings with a job. The way they give up is they give up selectively on your kid when your kid's a Jimmy for too long for them. And they just yep. go, that's the way it is. And they just worry like, okay, I got 42 kids in this class. 30 of them are getting it. I got to focus on them. Yeah. And it's not because they're terrible, awful people. I didn't just say that. Don't send me the hate mail. I will delete it and not read it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's because they're human beings and they're in a situation where they don't really have a choice. Yeah, those you, teachers are forced to think like that. Think about it like a doctor. I'm a doctor in an ER. I got five patients. I'm one doctor. I got two that are absolutely going to die if I don't take care of them right now. I got two that are going to be okay, and I got one that's probably going to die. And I can only take care of you know, two of, of the five. I'm going to look at the five, the three potentially fatal ones, and I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to work on the two I think I can save. Yeah, triage education, man. And that they're going to, we all do that same mental exercise with the choices we have to make every day. It's just not so clear, and it's a lot easier for us to say, "Oh, I really did help Jimmy." Yeah. No, no, you didn't. Does Jimmy know what the hell he's doing? No, then you didn't do it. <laughs> you know, and and well, you know, some people say, "Well, you know, some Jimmys are just dumb." No. No, I'm sorry. Um, the student is a reflection of the teacher, and you just can't apply one-size-fits-all education to no. a thousand people and not expect to end up with some falling through the cracks. It can't be done. That's why the entire system is a problem. I have a classroom of four, and I can't begin to tell you how differently I have to explain the same thing to my eight-year-old as I do my six-year-old. Like, their minds are so different. And to be one person standing in a room trying to justify or explain a certain subject to 35 minds, holy cow. Like, yeah. you're, 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 as a parent, you're just rolling the dice that your child is going to have the right mind to understand the way that this particular teacher explains it. And if it doesn't, tough love. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, how do you manage the farm, the house, the homeschool, until still have time to like work on yourself, your marriage, like you know your your own mat time? Right. Early mornings are a key. I mean, but at the same time, don't sacrifice uh, one's sleep for that. But you know, you can be very, very productive in the morning, taking care of your own time. Uh, my marriage, like. So as a stay-at-home dad, we have to think about this. Like when our wives leave the house and they have their own expectations for, you know, what, how the children are to be, how the house is to be. And our minds are not really wired like that. So there, there really is this time of adoption of expectations, like where you figure out when your spouse comes home, trying to figure out <clears throat> responsibility as responsibilities shift um, trying to figure out creative ways that, you know, when, when she comes home, how can I accommodate so that she can have her time with the kids and that things that she is <clears throat> naturally worried about tidiness, laundry, that type of thing. Uh, so that she's not burdened with that because when she comes home, she's, she's on the last quarter tank of gas. And, you know, this is the way a lot of parents are is like your children get the leftovers of you at the end of the day. And many times you just want to mindlessly consume fill in the blank, you know, yeah. uh, that time, uh, for your spouse is, is sacred, you know, and anything that we can do in the day to, 
make it so that that time doesn't they don't feel stressed i don't know this is really weird as a dude to talk about for your wife but it really does make a difference in the well-being of your marriage uh the other thing is is you can play you can make anything that you can turn into a game that most people call a job like laundry man you can make some really creative games and and get things mm-hmm. done uh to where your your children instead of being a liability become an asset and and help out on the farm and when you sort of adopt and uh construct these principles and systems of you know what kid you have a huge responsibility in this farm and you know my eight-year-old she is starting her own chicken business or raising chickens so she's learning you know marketing and business management and money management and when we sit down at the table and we eat one of her chickens that she raised and everybody you know extends their gratitude towards her for like hey thanks for taking the time to raise this chicken and she's like holy cow like i just fed my family at eight years old like we don't use the phrase when i grow up i want to hmm like you're that right now don't waste time waiting to grow up let's figure it out now and <clears throat> I think when the home, when you can really think about all these systems of the farm and, you know, equipping or empowering the kids, like, I don't care that you're six years old. Let's figure out a way that you can get the feed over there. Let's let's tr- maybe try to put it in two buckets instead of one so that it's about, you know, just making them think about how can I make this happen? You know, uh, that is empowering when you see. You know, because I used to, that was addicting. It was like a dopamine pump in, when I taught public school of watching that light come on with my students. I'm like, okay, how can I recreate this in my home with my own children? How can I put myself in an environment where my own gratification, because it can go backwards and get negative on you really fast if you don't have that mindset of like, all right, how can I get the light bulb to come on for my kids? Because that is what keeps me going every day. Like, what new can I teach my kids? Uh, man, it, it really once that ball starts rolling and you gain momentum and strength and your kids become excited and curious, man, it's, it, it's really fun to, to do this. But if you don't, it can be, it can destroy you. <laughs> so, so, um, have you ever thought of, since you were a teacher, specifically a music teacher, like, doing some tutoring for hire or something like that as a way to augment income or are you just kind of like you've got into a groove now and you're happy with the way life is and maybe doing that later or something yeah i mean i've I thought about that after my kids leave the house like I, I will still love teaching and trying to figure out a platform or a way like that's one of the things that's looming in the back of my mind is like there's got to be a better way to exchange information on a platform or somehow interacting with kids than you know, locking them in a building and, and doing it the current way we're doing it. Like, so trying to, I don't know, design something, uh, for that. As far as music goes, like I teach my own kids a private lesson every day on their, they play bluegrass music with me. Uh, I play banjo and my oldest plays fiddle and the next one plays mandolin and my five-year-old plays guitar. Um, and I do teach a few kids on YouTube as lessons, but, uh, and I use the, you know, I'll, they'll pay for a YouTube lesson that they can watch over and over again, and they don't have to sign up for a certain time. It's worked out well, but uh, I just have to continue to hone because I'm getting ready to to kind of equip each of my children with an enterprise on the farm that they can learn, you know, 
husbandry and, and management and, you know, uh, how to run a business at a young age. Um, so <laughs> that's kind of going to take up a lot of my time towards the middle quarter, middle half of my day with that. So absolutely, man. So, um, With that, I guess we're about ready to wrap up. You do have kind of a, a YouTube channel maybe you can tell people about. I don't see a website here, but you do have a YouTube oh, channel. Yeah, the YouTube channel is Homestead Mechanics. Uh, a lot of it's just uh, just impromptu uh, ramblings of me talking about the minds of children and, and farms and regenerative agriculture and government and Uh, I usually take a little break in my chore routine in the mornings and I'll whip out my phone and talk about a subject that's, you know, fresh on my head and just publish it and go. Uh, I'll post videos of my kids and I playing bluegrass music and such. Uh, it's just kind of a fun place for people to join and hang together to talk about literally anything under the sun. Uh, so. Well, cool, man. I really appreciate you being with us today. This is a really interesting discussion. I think it's probably given people a lot of things to think about. And I do think homeschooling is about to get an exponential leap. Because yeah. I think there's a lot of people that are going, you know what? This is not so bad. Yeah, I can do this. I can do this. And I, I think it's interesting that a lot of people said, I can't ever do this. Yeah. <laughs> The day you were told, well, guess what? You're doing it. People yeah. figured That's out how to do it. Yep. Look at you go. Look at you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate you being with us today. Jack, thanks a million, man. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. That really was a great interview and a great discussion. I, I really hope it's inspiring more of you guys to consider this. I, I think that one of the things we didn't say, it kept coming up, and I just didn't push it into a conversation because it didn't naturally fit in, but it kept coming up in my head, was the concept that Michael and Sula Priest talk about all the time that if, if you send your kids to public school for eight to ten hours a day, five days a week, that in the end, they're spending more time with teachers and other kids in an institution than they are quality hours with you. I, I don't mean to put anybody down for that. I sent my son to government school for the entire his entire education. We never did any, we did home learning, but we never did any homeschooling. And I traveled. So it was even more true with me for a, a number of key years in that, that kind of age where it's really formative, like the middle school years was when I was on the road the most. So it's, it, it's not looking down on anybody when I say this, but it's the truth because you, you get home from work and you're beat. You do what you can. You maybe watch a little TV or do some homework at home. Kids, especially as they get into those teenage years, they want to go out and do things with their friends, not sit around with their parents. And so maybe you get a couple hours a day, if you're lucky, of quality time with your kids. You, so the system's getting eight hours, nine, ten hours with them. So who's really raising your children? The state is. Again, I don't mean to put anybody down or anything. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just kind of pointing out that this is the truth, whether it, whether it sounds good or not. It's true. Um, my wife and I have talked about this. And, you know, in many ways, um, when he was really young, our son was partially raised by his grandparents. This was before me, especially. And, you know, Dorothy was a single mom, and, you know, they would pick him up from school, and, all, and they were spending more time with him than she was. And now, to some degree, we do that with our grandkids. And that's multi-generational, and that's fine. But she was talking recently about how upset she was when her dad made a comment about, you know, your mother 
did a lot of raising of Matthew because she felt it was a slight. But now she feels like she was she's grateful that that was able to happen. And she understands it now. She doesn't want to say that to our kids because maybe they're not there yet mentally with being willing to accept that. But that we're, to a large degree, raising our two grandkids right now. And we were talking about that. And I was pointing out, like, well, then when you send your kid to the state and they're more with the state more hours a day than you are, who's raising your kids? Teachers and the school and the agenda of the state. And if there's not a bigger reason to consider this than that, I don't, I don't know what would do it. Now, the other side of it is, as we talked about with Matt today, that can be the impetus for finding your why, but I don't think it can be your why. I think you have to have this broader vision of what you're able to give to your children. More and more as I talk to my grandson, and I continuously pound into his little brain the concept of the trivium. Because I know it's, I've said it, I know he could probably tell you the words that you wanted to hear right now, but I know it hasn't gone in yet. The real empowerment of understanding the ability to communicate verbally and to hear verbal communication and process it. To then take that information and expand on it and make a case for something with rhetoric. And to use logic as a bridge so that I can take what I know, what I'm not sure of, and use logic to extrapolate an answer. And then rhetoric to communicate that so that I can then take that thing that I've figured out and make someone else understand it, even though it's new information to both of us. That once you understand the true power of that, you realize that if I can teach a person how to read, how to write, and how to verbally communicate, and I can, you know, kind of build a healthy dose of logic into that and some foundational knowledge. That their limiting their limit to to learning becomes unlimited. They're limited only by their own their own willingness, you know, their own resistance to certain subjects. Some people aren't interested in certain things. I I am not going to learn how to build a nuclear reactor because I don't care. I don't care. It's not because I can't. I just don't care. It's not important to me. I'm not going to build one in my backyard. So I'd rather learn how to build a solar array because I might build one of those. So if you can teach your kids this framework, then what they want to learn becomes completely unlimited. Especially if you can empower them with the knowledge of what you've given them. This is what I'm giving you. I'm giving you this as a gift, this education, this core. Now you take it and do something amazing with it. So that as we talked about today, with our quote of the day, which I didn't do in the intro segment, but we mentioned during the show from Leonardo da Vinci, poor is the pupil who does not surpass his master. I have absolutely no problem with my grandson becoming smarter than me before he's a grown man. I would consider myself very successful if I empower him to do that. Trust me, the people that teach your kids in school have no interest in having those children become smarter and more informed than they are. There might be a fair, few rare exceptions, and I'll tell you what, what happens to those teachers. They end up quitting or they get driven out, the ones that think that way. And I've just met way too many of them, and I know that's what happens. Or they get really good at you know bringing people in the back door or whatever. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up. Let remind, me remind you 
that one of the ways you can help support this show is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. i got a new item for you today. It is the DC8, DCA1820 generic DeWalt battery adapter. That's a mouthful. Uh, it's such a mouthful I even got it wrong while I was reading it. Anyway, the generic DCA1820 DeWalt battery adapter for 18 volt to 20 volts. And that's what it does. You take your old 18 volt DeWalt's. You plug this thing into it, and then you can take your new fancy eight, uh, 20 volt lithium batteries and put them into the adapter, and now your old tools use the new batteries. This is not really a new idea, and DeWalt came out with one to address the installed base of 18 volt tools, which is huge still, like five years ago. And so I got one, and it worked, and I have this one tool that. I hooked it up as a circular saw, and I put it in there, and I didn't buy a new circular saw in the new format, so I was happy. And But I had some old 20-volt batteries, and I just kept using them for some, like, you know, if you are a person that does a lot with power tools, you generally have, like, a really good drill, like some Rambo drill that's a beast, and then you'll have, like, a second or even a third drill that are maybe medium light-duty drills. And you do that because, like, okay, well, I'm just going to need this one-eighth inch bit, and I don't want to keep swapping, so I can just grab this one and then grab this one. And it's just, it makes things more convenient. So eventually, all my 18-volt batteries, as, as good as the old ones were, kind of just stop taking charge. They just wear out. And the new ones suck. They suck. They suck, they suck, they suck. They suck major ass. They live about as long as a goldfish from a carnival. Like when you go and you throw the little ping pong balls in the goldfish bowl and they give you a goldfish and then it dies before you even get it home. Like that's the lifespan of an 18-volt battery from DeWalt today. And I understand why. Uh, DeWalt made the move about six years ago. And the technology of those batteries is 30 years old. I was using DeWalt 18-volt tools in 1995 as a CATV installer and technician and... I worked, you know, in that market for a while, and everybody I knew used them because these are, this is an environment where tools can't die because you don't get paid by the hour, you get paid by the job. So if your tool's dead, you're not getting any work done, you're losing money. And they give your, they give your work to another tech, by the way, while you're going to get a new tool. So, you, you know, this is a place where you drop your tools into muddy ditches, they fall off trucks, you go up on telephone poles, you drill telephone poles, which is like the most brutal thing you can do to a drill. Uh, you're coring hard line. If you don't know what it means, don't worry, it just sucks. And um, so that's when I became a fan. But that means that technology in those batteries is decades old. So I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, find any fault with DeWalt for saying kind of like, this is old tech. Yeah, we still make the batteries. We're not putting any effort into making them as good as they were 20 years ago. We make them because people buy them. And we're putting all our effort into the new thing. But the problem was... When I started looking at the price of their adapter, it was 34 bucks. There's like some of the tools you can buy bare tools for like $50. Um, when it comes to like a light-duty drill, they have a light-duty drill. comes with two, I think they're two amp-hour batteries. Light-duty drill, two amp-hour batteries, two two-amp-hour batteries, and a charger for 99 bucks. So I'm sitting here looking at this 15-year-old 18-volt light-duty drill and going... Do I spend $34 just to be able to plug and a new battery into it? Or do I just throw it away and buy? I mean, because then I have some new batteries and a new adapter, and nobody's ever like, gee, I wish I had less batteries and less adapt, uh, less batteries and less chargers, right? You know, like the more chargers you have, the more batteries you have. You have them up all on a shelf, and whenever a battery's dead, swap, you know. 
So then I found these generic ones. They are $14.50 a piece in a two-pack. Well, this works. Because now all my old tools, I just bought one of these, I slapped it in it, and just got rid of the old 18-volt batteries and the old 18-volt chargers. And my life is better, and now I'm not swapping the adapters and everything. I just Every tool is like an 18-volt tool. Um, there's two complaints about these adapters that I've found in the negative reviews. One is the shipping, blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's UPS or the post office or whatever. That's not the manufacturer's fault, and that should not reflect poorly on the tool itself. The other one is if you leave it in the tool and you leave the battery plugged in overnight, it will drain the battery. I agree, and that is a flaw, and I wish I don't understand why it happens, but it does. Guess what? The $34 a piece ones do the same thing. It's a flaw in the official DeWalt one that happens to be black and yellow instead of just black. They're the same thing. They're the exact same adapter. The difference is the nameplate and the color. That's it. So you can pay $34 to have a yellow and black one, or you can pay $14.50 to have a black one. At $14.50, even my light-duty tools, it makes sense. You buy one, I attach it to it. It just becomes part of the tool forever, and uh, we'll see if that 15-year-old tool can't become a 20-year-old tool. Anyway, check them out. Again, they are the generic DCA 1820s. And there's some other important things in the write-up about the 20-volt chargers. If you're an old-school 18-volt guy, you don't just drop batteries in. You snap them in. Uh, and I, I'm interested. Can anyone recommend a good generic battery for DeWalt 20-volt tools? I've tried two different brands. Both had decent reviews. Um, both were shit. They're garbage. If someone And the problem is if you order batteries like this from Amazon and they don't work, you can't return them because they're a hazard. It's funny. They can ship them to you, but you can't ship them back. I, whatever. So you get screwed. So normally with Amazon, I'm like, I'll order anything because if it doesn't work, it's going back. But I, you know, after buying two different uh, battery packs and having them both be garbage, I, I, I'm out. But if anybody has found a good generic 20 volt, especially like a high amp hour, like a four or five amp hour equivalent battery for DeWalt 20 volt, DeWalt, DeWalt 20 volt tools. Please tell me what it is. I will order them. I will put it through its paces. And if it works, I will bring it out and say, Hey, here it is. Go get this because that is the most expensive part of this tool system. It, it really is. And, uh, again, like I said, no one ever said, gee, I wish I had less batteries, uh, when it comes to a, a, an outfitting a tool set. So. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today. And let's talk about our song of the day. Real short on it, it's called Unafraid, and it's by Joy Williams. Never heard it before. Don't know who Joy Williams is, but it's been around a while. It's like, I don't know how old it really is. I don't remember when I looked it up, but I know the video has been online for like eight years that, that I'm linked to today, so it's at least that old. Um, but it's about facing life unafraid. In fact, in spite of all the things that go wrong in our lives, all the things that can go wrong in our lives, being unafraid. Well, if you're noticing a theme in the music this week, it's about facing life unafraid. It's about being brave. It's about not letting fear control you, including in the middle of a pandemic. It really is something that we need to get a grip on. I've seen people so willing to sacrifice liberty because of fear. I wouldn't even say for safety. Because safety would actually, you know, like, as bad as it is, if it really was making you safer... At least understand a little bit why you're thinking that way. But the irrational clinging to tyranny due to fear of something that is less likely to kill you than getting in a car wreck 
It just makes no sense. And that doesn't mean being crazy and forgetting about all restrictions and going out and being nuts and swapping spit with people in, in you know, nightclubs, if that's your thing or whatever. Like, we can, we can be smart about how we reopen things. But this absolute terror in some people's minds that the world will literally end if we come out of our homes, and the words of Joy Williams, please, don't do that. Be unafraid. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Try to keep me down But I've had